the, uh, the line, the last line of the song that we, the, the last song we sang is something that I think hope just resonates with us and through us. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And so when you, maybe when you saw the title for the sermon for this morning in your email yesterday, you uh, thought about that and wondered why, does, why would the sermon be titled What Jesus Said About Sex? And probably some of you are thinking when you see that today, you're thinking, oh no, not more about sex. Can't we just take a break from that? At, at least in church or especially in church, do we really have to talk about that here? And I, I get that. Um, I, I'm like you, I live in this, this time, and it seems to me like we're bombarded with loud messages about sex, or at least about sexualized advertising almost wherever we turn. A lot of the media that we see, especially advertising, seems to kind of just be hard to, to it, it kind of focuses our attention in that direction, even in the grocery store. I feel like there are more and more products now that are, the label on them says they're naked something, like now you can buy naked chips. I think, what is, why, does it, why do they need to be called naked? Couldn't they just be called natural or you know, something? And granola, you know, it can't just be natural without preservatives. There's actually a company called Bare Naked Granola. And I think, really? Um, uh, there's a TV show about real estate investments for people who are doing that for the first time, who are making their first investments. There's called Property Virgins. And another one about uh, pawn shops called Pawn Stars. And it just goes on and on and on. The problem is that there is so much, um, there's so much going on in our society that's related to sex and gender issues and questions that I think it would be irresponsible for us not to talk about it from time to time. And I want to start, but I, I want to start this morning by reminding you of something I said several weeks ago in a sermon we called Reading Through Jesus. So our theme and the music this morning really points us in this direction. I think it's a helpful launch point for what I want to talk about this morning. When we say that as followers of Jesus, we want to read the scriptures through the Jesus lens, we mean that whenever we read the Bible, whenever we're looking for answers to questions about how to live our lives, all of the practicalities of our lives, whether it's uh, the habits that we have, whether it's the relationships that we're in, whether it's violence and warfare like we talked a few weeks ago, whether it's the meaning of life or how we got here, where we're going, or yes, even sex, I think the first, I hope that one of the first questions we're asking as followers of Jesus is, what did Jesus say about this? Or what did Jesus do about this? Did Jesus address this in any specific way? Because our goal is for our convictions and our behavior, for our minds to be lined up with who Jesus is, what Jesus said and who he, what he taught, to be in harmony with Jesus. And so that's why the title this morning is what Jesus said about sex. <clears throat> so that's a really important thing to keep in mind as we talk about that this morning. The second one, that I, a second foundational thing I want you to keep in mind this morning is that it says very clearly in John 1, as Marshall read for us this morning, that Jesus was full, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. His teaching was, his, he, as a person, he was full in grace and truth. And so I want to just remind you this morning that we'll know that our convictions are solid, that they're aligned with who Jesus is and was, if they line up with his teaching, with his example, but also if when we talk about these topics that are especially controversial ones, that people walk away saying, yes, what that person said to me was full of grace and full of truth. I think sometimes we, we find a fall into mostly talking about the truth about one of these things, or we fall into only offering grace. 
I just wanted to remind you this morning that Jesus is full of both grace and truth. So, what did Jesus say about sex that was full of grace and truth? Well, it's actually kind of interesting in a highly sexualized time to find that Jesus did not say a whole lot that was specifically about sex. He also, there's never a time where he gave a systematic teaching that kind of goes from start to finish and kind of lays it all out. He makes a few statements here and there. The, the, the most uh, general statement we have from him is the one that is in Matthew 19 that you heard this morning, where he was responding to a question that he got from the Pharisees who came to him, and that was a question they asked about divorce. And in answering that question, he steps back and gives them a bigger picture answer. He, he does answer their question, but he steps back and gives them a, a bigger picture setting or context in which to answer that, a bigger picture about marriage and about sexuality. And as he often does, Jesus covers a lot of ground in just a few brief statements. It's, it's pretty incredible how much ground he covers in some of his answers. His answer to them about divorce goes back to the beginning. So in verses uh, four through six, he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? He made humankind as uh, male and female, a man and a woman. And for this reason, because they're created a man and a woman, uh, uh, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And that, actually, that part is quoting, he's quoting there from Genesis 2.24, where he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's a verse directly from Genesis 2. But then he adds the, the rest of it, verse six, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So we have him going back to creation saying, you were designed as male and female, designed to be united in marriage, and when united in marriage, not separated, a lifelong union. We were designed for a lifelong union in marriage, and it's that con that's the context within which a human sexuality is meant to be expressed and experienced. And then in verse eight, he says, um, Moses permitted you, or in other words, the law of Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard but it was not this way from the beginning. It's very interesting there that God has kind of made an allowance there for the reality of people's lives, but Jesus says it was not that way from the beginning, and I'm calling you back to reminding you of the way things were in the beginning. Jesus also refers here in verse nine to sexual immorality. He says, um, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So here, adultery is uh, kind of an example, a, a particular kind of sexual immorality. Jesus only uses that term two other times in his teaching, but it's a reference to the Jewish understanding of sexual sin, which is described in much more detail in Leviticus 18. Jesus speaking to a Jewish audience using this phrase, they would, they would have understood what he was referring to as the... Um, I guess you might call the table of, or the list of things that would be considered sexually immoral. And in that, in Leviticus 18, there's a list of specific things that are, that God considers to be out of bounds morally in terms of sexual behavior, or sex that's not morally good. And one example that's mentioned here in Matthew 19 is adultery. But it's interesting, I want you to just highlight, I want, to notice, I want you to notice with me in the things that Jesus highlights, that he echoes and reaffirms here in Matthew 19, a simple statement of God's ideal in creation. 
And he says, this is what, he reminds them of what they were designed for. So he, he reminds them that they were, we were created as a male and female, and that we were designed to be joined as one flesh in marriage, in a lifelong union, that would not be easily separated, that would not be easily, uh, yeah, it says, he said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So sex was designed to be part of married life, to be part of what it means to be married. It also means here that he's pointing back to the creation. Remember what it says in the creation, that it was good. God's creation was very good. Sex was created as part of God's good creation. And as much as Christians throughout the centuries have had a reputation for talking about sex as a bad thing or something we don't want to talk about very much, I think we kind of forget that God created us as sexual beings. The fact that we can experience sexual pleasure or a a longing to connect with another person sexually, that comes from God. That was God's idea. It's a wonderful and good part of God's wonderful and good creation. But it's also clear as you think about the creation that sex was designed to, to have a supporting role in human life. It had a particular place in the order of things. It was not meant to be a, have a leading role, to be the main thing people focused on or talked about. So I want you to keep those things in mind as some of the truth of what Jesus points us to about sex here in Matthew 19. There is something about uh, marriage, about the joining of a man and woman in marriage that makes them one flesh. Even though we see husbands and wives living, continuing to live in two separate bodies, I think maybe a young child reading that would think, well, what does that mean? How can you be one flesh if I see that you still are two separate beings? Well, the reality is that being married to someone and being sexually active with someone means that we're spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically glued together or bonded together by that experience. There's a way in which sex is a, a kind of a glue that glues people together. People are, uh, a, a husband and wife are covenanted to each other, so that's, that's a pledge that we make together before God. And um, that's symbolized by a, a, a physical joining. Studies consist, research studies consistently show that the highest levels of uh, satisfaction or sexual activity is among people in faithful monogamous marriages, one, one husband married to one wife. A lot of the messages that we get from our culture tell us that's not true, tell us that the most exciting sex happens outside of marriage with different partners before marriage or after marriage, certainly outside of it. And in many cases, the stories that we're told kind of ridicule or present uh, sex within marriage as a dull and an awful thing. But I want to tell you that's a lie. That's a lie, and it's in the research studies if anybody wants to go and look them up. That's just backwards. Even secular social science research shows that the most, people reporting the most satisfied sexual experience are people who are in long-term, committed relationships with one husband or one wife. In a marriage relationship, ideally, you're deeply devoted to each other. Somebody who knows you're not going anywhere someone with whom you are laying down your life and they're laying down their lives for you. Sex is meant to be a part of that expression and part of that closeness and something that draws you ever closer to the person that you share that with. And then quite simply, any sexual relation or connection outside of that simple standard is, is a departure from God's ideal, is considered sexual immorality because we're not meant to be glued together with anyone in any other way. 
We're not meant to be glued together in that particular way with anyone that we're not married to, that we're not committed to the marriage with, and that we're not in a lifelong commitment to. As I said, that's because sex always glues people together spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically. Sex is like glue. It glues two people together. Even if it only happens once, even if there's only one uh, sexual interaction between uh, uh, two people, and even if, it doesn't, even if you have no particular connection to the person otherwise, no matter who the partner is or how committed to them, whether you're married to them or not, sex is a glue, it, there's a kind of a glue to it that's designed to glue you to your husband or to your wife, to deepen your bond to the other person. And the problem with that then is that it means, if that's true, that means that you leave a part of yourself behind with every sexual partner. Because of the, the, the kind of glue it is, you leave a part of yourself behind with every person you connect with sexually. And that's why people that we're not married to are out of bounds for us as sexual partners, especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And so that includes people we're not married to, and as we see here in Matthew 19, it includes people who are casually divorced. Divorced for, at the time, the custom was that husbands could divorce their wives. The reason I think the the Pharisees asked Jesus about this is because the custom had devolved to a point where husbands were able to divorce their wives by just a simple writing on a piece of paper, I divorce you. And women were being harmed by this system. And I think they, they, they felt like it was legal, but it just didn't sit right with most people because women were harmed by this so much. They, had no, they didn't have the same advantages at the time that we're used to now. And I think that's probably why they came to him with this question and said, is that really legal? hoping to trap him. This is one of those questions they were hoping to trap him with. So partners that we're not married to are out of bounds for us. Temporary partners, same-sex partners, multiple partners, animal partners or virtual partners through pornography or other virtual means that are right now being developed to take us away from this ideal. Well, people today are increasingly saying this standard is out of date. It's not very popular in our time. Well, I want to tell you it felt out of date even in the early days. <laughs> there was a time, I mean, if you, read, if you know the world of the New Testament, it was the, the license for sexuality was even broader than what we know today. So this teaching hasn't made God's people, the followers of Jesus, very popular in any age. This hasn't been the, the popular teaching of the time. But the reality of this is that this standard for sex that Jesus reaffirms here requires sexual discipline from all of us. It requires all of us to master our sexual desires, our sexuality, just like our emotions. There's teaching in the New Testament about our emotions. It says, you know, emotions are created by God as well. It seems that God has emotions because we see that reflected in the scriptures. God's created us with emotions. They're a gift of God, but they're not meant to lead us around. They're not meant to be the focus of our lives. They're meant to be things that we harness that we master, that we are in charge of our emotions, and we're, we're called to be in charge of our sexual desires and our sexual behaviors. And more broadly, that's just part of our, our total surrender to our Lord Jesus. Paul says, give your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Give your bodies, everything about your body, what you eat, what you drink, where you go, what you say, and how you, how you experience sexuality. All of those things are meant to be surrendered to the Lord Jesus. 
Another thing that we hear in our time is that I just couldn't help myself. I just couldn't help myself. Well, according to biblical standards, that's just not true. That's a lie. We can be thinking ahead, preparing ourselves for moments of of difficult temptation. But Paul says, master everything about your bodies and surrender it to the Lord Jesus. Another thing, another one of the lies that we hear in our time is that you need to be sexually active to live a fulfilled life. And again, I wanna tell you that is simply not true. That is a lie. As wonderful as sex can be, the Bible is very clear that sex is not essential to a fulfilled life. It's not essential to a fulfilled life. It's a wonderful part of married life, but it's not essential to a fulfilled life, which I've heard people say the exact opposite. I've read whole articles that are based on the exact opposite truth. And this should sound like good news to us. We should receive this as good news because it's very possible to live a rich and fulfilled life, whether you're married or single, young or old, without having sex be the focus of your thought and your life. Many people live rich and fulfilled lives without being sexually active. Jesus himself was a single person who never married. The Apostle Paul, as far as we know, was never married. Two of the, the main heroes of our faith who gave a lot of shape to uh, the Christian, well, who shaped the Christian faith, um, lived very rich and fulfilled lives, people we model our lives after. Healthy, loving relationships are essential to a fulfilled life. We are designed for deep, mature, close-knit, loving relationships. And that's a, a network that we're meant, a community of relationships, as we talked last week, that we're meant to live our lives in. But sexually, uh, sex doesn't have to be a part of that in order for us to be able to live a fulfilled life. That's because we're not mainly defined by our sexuality, not mainly defined by our sexual desires or our sexual identity. Whatever it is, whatever it isn't, whatever we struggle with, that's really not our main definition of who we are. As followers of Jesus, we are defined by our relationship to Jesus Christ and by our surrender to him. And that surrender requires discipline and changes for all of us. I still think about maybe two, three weeks ago where Jonathan Borman in his sermon, he said at some point following Jesus is gonna run, is gonna run counter to our natural desires. And that's true for all of us, no matter who we are and no matter what our focus is in our, in our thinking or in our desires. We're defined by our relationship to Jesus Christ, defined by our identity as the children of God defined by our surrender to him. So most of what I've said so far is kind of on the truth side of things. Things that are true about us, about sexuality, about our relationship to Jesus. What about the grace side of things? If we're full of grace and full of truth, well I wanna offer you four graceful statements, full graceful insights that I think may be helpful to us in this regard. The first one may surprise you somewhat, and that is that God puts up with some departures from his standard. Well, (laughs) that might surprise you, as I said, but we see that very clearly here in this passage we read this morning. In verse eight, it says that God permitted you to divorce your wives. He said, because of the hardness of your heart, but he adjusted what he was expecting for that reason. Another example from the Old Testament is that many of the um, heroes of our faith from the Old Testament had multiple wives. Clearly different from what Jesus cites in Genesis 2 in the, create, in the creation where he says he, he created us male and female so that a man is joined to a woman in a marriage. One man joined to one woman in marriage. 
Abraham is one of the greatest heroes of the whole Judeo-Christian faith tradition, had multiple wives. So God makes a, seems to make some allowance for some deviations from his standard. Some people today are saying that homosexual behavior is an example of this in our time, that it may not be God's ideal, but it's something that God is accepting and blessing, even if it doesn't fit the teaching, the Bible's teaching, broadly speaking, about human sexuality. Well, I guess I would say to that 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 may be so, but we don't have any clear indication that that's true. There's no, no new revelation from God that's, that says that to be the case. Um, it's up to God to decide what kinds of things he permits and which kinds of things he doesn't. And in the absence of a clear indication that that's true, I would be very careful about opening up new kinds of things that we say God is blessing and accepting. Also, God is calling, and I guess I'm back now on the truth side of things, but God is calling us as his people to live out his standards, his way of life, so that we can be, as Marshall talked about this morning, the kingdom of God, a city on the hill. We can uh, live out for people an example of what it looks like to be kingdom people. And the way we decide what that includes is we look at the Old Testament. We seek to live in harmony with who Jesus was and what he taught. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality because it will ruin your life. It will destroy your relationship with God. So God is not soft on sin, but it does seem, as a grace-filled statement, that God does make some allowance for departures from that standard. The second statement is that we are all tempted. We are all tempted in one way or another at some point in this area of our lives, especially in the time in which we live. As adults of all ages, from young to old, we're tempted by sexual relations that would draw us out beyond this boundary that, that Jesus is affirming for us here of sex in marriage. One of the strange things about sex is that we're all drawn at some point, we're all attracted to a partner or to sexual experiences that are out of bounds for us. There's something about it being forbidden that it makes it even more appealing. I'm sure, I think you all know what this is like. In your life, there are things where you know there's something that's forbidden to you and almost the forbiddenness makes it more enticing. And I know this is true because you can see this in children when they're ch- sometime between eight to 12 months, eight to 11 months, when, a, when a, you know it's time to begin training your child more specifically, more intentionally when you say, no, don't go into that room. And they look you in the eye and they hesitate for a moment and what do they do? They go directly into that room. Or they're, they're whacking the dog, and you look at them and you say, no, honey, don't, don't hit the dog like that. And then she looks at you and waits a second and hits the dog even harder. And you think, why do they do that? Why do we do that? It's because we're all tempted by evil. We're all drawn to forbiddenness, to, to testing the limits that somebody else imposes on us. So I want to invite you to receive that as a grace-filled statement for yourself this morning, but I also want you to take it in as a reminder to keep, to keep that in mind when you are tempted or inclined to be disgusted by someone else's temptation or somebody else's sexual struggle. If they're struggling with an attraction that you're not struggling with, or they've struggled with a, 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 a history that you don't struggle with, remember that you yourself have been attracted or tempted by another kind of sexual sin that's just as wrong as what this person maybe is attracted to. 
The fact that we're all tempted also highlights one of the main lies that Satan tells us about our sexual temptations, and that is that the temptation to believe that all of my temptations, my situation is unique. Nobody else really understands my situation. Nobody else is facing quite the same challenges or in quite the same arrangement as the way I, what I'm facing, and so I really can't talk about this with anyone because probably nobody, there, there really isn't anybody who would fully understand and really be able to help me with this because my situation is unique. I know this to be true because I told myself that for a long time too, especially when I was in my 20s. I didn't talk with anybody about the battles that I was fighting at the time with what I was reading, what I was exposing myself to, with uh, what I was thinking, with my imagination, my thought life, and even with some of my behavior, because I was convinced that nobody else would fully understand my situation. And as I got a little bit older, I realized that that is simply not true. It is just simply not true, that is a lie. I wanna assure you that there are people all around you who know exactly what it's like to struggle with or to battle sexual desires and temptations that don't fit the framework that Jesus gives us here. There are people in this room who know what you're, I mean, they're not in your shoes, but they have walked a very similar journey to yours. I'm not naive about this, I know that Sometimes these are very strong desires, very strong impulses and temptations, but I also want to assure you this is not only true for people in their younger years. This is true for people in every age group. In in my time as pastor here, I have talked with people in their 70s, people in their 80s, and people in their 90s who are either currently struggling with a sexual temptation that they wanted to talk with me about, or they're struggling with regret for a sexual sin that they feel like they haven't fully resolved, they can't quite shake. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, the temptations in your life are no different from what other people experience. Did you hear what he said there? The temptations in your life are no different from what other people experience, but God is faithful. He will not allow the temptations to be more than, the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure, so that you can hold up under that temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 might be a verse you want to memorize. The temptations in your life are no different from what other people experience, but God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. That leads me directly to the third graceful statement, which is it is not a sin to be tempted. It is not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to be attracted to someone who is off limits or out of bounds for you. We do move into sin when we dwell on that temptation, when we toy with it, when we imagine the possibilities and we think that that's not sin because we're not doing anything specific with our bodies. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, in another brief teaching about sex, he says that adultery is not just something you commit with your body, it can also be something you commit with your mind, and truthfully, most people commit adultery in their minds long before they commit adultery with their bodies. That's true for other types of sexual immorality as well. But we know this is not, that the temptation is not a sin because Jesus himself was tempted. The great, the sinless one who, took, who bore our sin was himself tempted. We know that from his experience with the devil in the, in the, in the desert in Matthew 4. Hebrews also says we have a high priest, Jesus, 
who has been tempted in every way we are and yet did not sin. Later it says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was impacted by, he struggled with his temptation, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So there is help and there's grace in the Lord Jesus, but it is not a sin to be tempted. Acting on the temptation is what is the sin. Finally and fourth, I wanna say clearly to you this morning that whatever your struggles or whatever your desires, whatever temptations you're wrestling with in this area, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever brokenness there may be in your life because of decisions that you've made or that other people have made about sexual, sexuality, God loves you and God offers you forgiveness. God loves you and God offers you forgiveness for the mistakes you've made, for the pain in your, for the brokenness in your life. All he asks is that you turn away from those mistakes that you ask for forgiveness. He wants to give you a new start. He wants to give you hope. He has a redeemed future for you. There's a passage in, uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul has a list of, of sexual sins, and at the end he says, such were some of you. Some of you were lost in those kinds of sins, but now you have been redeemed in Christ. Your sins have, forgive, have been forgiven, and now live a new life in Christ. He has a grace-filled future for you. It may not be an easy future. There may still be some some challenges to overcome, but it can be a grace-filled future. The book of John says, if we're living in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So no matter what struggle or what brokenness you have experienced or are experiencing in this part of your life, I want you to remember that God loves you and God offers you a grace-filled, hope-filled future as a person who's forgiven as a son or a daughter of God. And I wanna remind you again that we are not primarily defined by, mainly defined by our sexuality or our sexual past. We are defined by our relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ and by our surrender to him. So however you are responding to what I've said this morning, I wanna urge you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ or to re-surrender your life to our Lord Jesus. To surrender not only your sexual desires, although that's important, but all of who you are. This, a surrender in our sexual, uh, the sexual part of our lives is just part of our broader surrender to the Lord Jesus. If that's not something you've done, if you haven't surrendered your life, or if that's something you, not something you're interested in doing, then surrendering the, the, what Jesus said about sex is not really the main issue for you. The starting point to caring about what Jesus said about sex is to uh, become his follower. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I urge you to turn away from sexual sin. If that's something that you need to do, I'm sure that the specifics of it come immediately to mind for you and you know what I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit will bring that to your mind. I urge you to ask for forgiveness, to turn to a trusted friend, remembering what I said, that the people around you understand what this is like. And if you don't have anybody who comes to mind, I, I come talk to me because I do know what it's like and I'm, I told you that very clearly this morning and I'd be happy to help you walk a different path. So that's my sense of what Jesus says about sex. I urge you to consider that this morning 
and to respond to whatever it is that God's asking of you today. Lord Jesus, I thank you 